This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nutshell Politics. I am your charming host, Justin Kinney, and I am excited to be here with you guys for another episode. Now, today we're going to be doing a current event episode, and I wanted to talk about a pretty big news story that took place uh, just about a week ago. And this was the Senate voting to end U.S. support for the war in Yemen, uh, which is a pretty big deal. But I think it's one that a lot of people don't really understand what's going on because the Yemeni civil war has been probably the most forgotten war of the 21st century, uh, especially given its its devastating effects. But this was this vote in the Senate was the first time that the Senate has ever utilized specific powers that they have under the 1973 War Powers Act. Uh, which gives Congress the specific power to demand an end to military actions. Now, this is probably more symbolic than anything because I I don't think the House is ultimately going to vote on the measure, which they would have to do for it to go through. But this is a pretty major slap in the face to Saudi Arabia, which is a kind of a key U.S. ally, has been for a very long time, as well as to Trump and some of the other um, supporters of, of what's going on there. And we'll talk about all that in just a minute. But I wanted to emphasize, too, that this is a this was a bipartisan vote. So it's not a party line vote. It was, uh, I think, 56 to 41. In order for that to pass, it had to be from both Democrats and Republicans. And so this was very bipartisan. And immediately after this initial vote, there was a unanimous resolution, a second resolution, condemning the murder of the Washington Post uh, writer and Saudi critic Jamal Khashoggi. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a little while, you know I actually did a whole episode on who Khashoggi was and kind of what happened to him. Uh, But this vote was very important symbolically because it it pinned the blame for Khashoggi's death on uh, the Saudi crown prince, a man by the name of Mohammed bin Salman. Now, all of that said, let's go ahead and back up a ways and talk about what's happening in Yemen. And then we'll kind of get to the U.S. role and what this 1973 War Powers Act is all about as well. Okay, so Yemen is a country in the Middle East. A lot of people don't know it's actually a fairly small country, kind of um, just south of Saudi Arabia. It is officially a Republic of Yemen, and it's on the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula, which means that it's bordered by Saudi Arabia on the north and Oman to the east, but then it also borders the Gulf of Aden, the Red Sea, and the Arabian Sea as well. Now, its capital is officially a a city by the name of Sana'a, but that city has been under rebel control since 2015, so it's not even really... Uh, owned by the, the Yemeni's government anymore. It is considered a developing country. Yemen is probably the poorest country in the entire Middle East. And it actually has a fairly long history going all the way back to um, probably over a thousand years ago when it was the home of the, a group of people called the, the Sabaeans. But the iteration of Yemen that we know of today, or contemporary Yemen, didn't really exist until 1990. So there was, a, it was kind of split up at the time during uh, the 19, 
teens, like 1918 or so, there was North Yemen. Then it became the Yemen Arab Republic in the 60s. And in the late 60s, you got South Yemen. And then these various iterations unified in 1990. And they have their official constitution in 1991. So as we know of them, contemporary Yemen, they've only really existed about, what is that now, 30 years or so. Now, what's important to know about Yemen for what's going on there right now is that they've been in a state of political crisis since about 2011 with the Arab Spring. We've probably touched on the Arab Spring several times in this podcast on various episodes, but this was an era in, like I said, around 2011 or so, where there were a lot of protests and uprisings across many countries in the Middle East. But Yemen was one of these, and they had a lot of street protests, particularly around things like unemployment, poverty. Uh, they believe there's a lot of corruption in government. And then the president at the time had planned to amend Yemen's constitution and take out the presidential term limit, which would have essentially made him president for life. So people saw that as an autocratic takeover. And so there were a lot of protests about this. Now that president, a man by the name of Saleh, uh, did step down and the powers of the presidency got moved and transferred over. But this time period where they were transitioning the presidency from Saleh to the next the next president who was elected in 2012, there was a, almost a complete absence of any sort of centralized government in Yemen. And so this actually led to the escalation of a lot of fighting that was going on during the country, in particular between a handful of rebel groups. You had the Al-Qaeda insurgency that took place there. Al-Qaeda, I think, I think a lot of people know who they are from Osama bin Laden, but they actually have a pretty huge uh, headquarters and base in the, the Yemeni's territory. There was also the Houthi rebels uh, of the Ansar Allah militia and several other forces as well. And I mentioned the Houthis a minute ago. I want to touch on just who they are a little bit. Uh, their official title, as I just kind of mentioned, is called Ansar Allah, which means supporters of God in Arabic. It is an, kind of an Islamic movement, but it's specifically kind of a, a mix of religion and politics, but also very violent. And they're part of a, a sect called the Zaidi movement. Now, the Houthis officially have been around since the mid-1990s, but they didn't really become a big deal until they got involved in this in this uh, 2011 Yemeni revolution. Uh, so they were part of these street protests. They started coordinating with other opposition groups in the area, and ultimately they took over the government. They became so powerful, they took over the government in the capital city, and they have essentially gained a large chunk of control of territory across the northern part of Yemen, and they have actually been fighting even external forces in the Saudi Arabian-led coalition that's kind of come through as well. And we'll talk about that again in a second. But, so the, but the Houthis are kind of the major rebel group that you need to know in, in Yemen. Now, the Yemeni's civil war, as I said, um, kind of has its roots back in 2011, this political turmoil. But this, the war really kicks off in 2015. And you have really two factions, the Houthis, as I mentioned, and then you have the, the Yemeni government led by the president, a man by the name of uh, Mansur Hadi. Now, both of them have various supporters and allies, but those are the kind of the two sides here. And both claim, or both state that they have claims to the Yemeni government. Now, this war has been going on for a little over three years now, actually probably close to four years now. And it's been very, very deadly. A lot of people don't really realize this because it doesn't get the publicity of, say, uh, the civil war taking place in Syria as well, which is also a very deadly war. But in Yemen, there's been something like close to 100,000 people killed overall, including six to 7,000 of those being innocent civilians, another 50,000 or so that have been wounded, 
and well over 3 million people have been displaced. And that's a huge, huge percentage. So Yemen itself has a population uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 27 million. So about a ninth of their entire population of the country has been displaced, uh, which, which is just you know huge and drastic. And this has become a very, very openly hostile conflict. And it's probably dragging on a much longer due in part to some of these outside influences. We'll talk about that in a second. But with Saudi Arabia, even the United States has gotten involved with this a little bit. And you have coalitions, including countries like the UAE, Kuwait, Qatar, Morocco, Jordan, Sudan, Egypt, Pakistan, and several others as well. And so this revolution has a lot of outside fighters, which if you study military conflict at all, you, you know that conflicts tend to last longer when they have third-party funding and support like this one does. And so it's lasting a very, very long time. Now, uh, there are a lot of these rebel groups. As I said, the Houthis are probably the main one, but Al-Qaeda is there as well. Uh, the Islamic State has been involved in this as well. That's ISIS. At one point, Al-Qaeda owned something like a third of the entire uh, Yemen country. Uh, which is, I mean, you, you, I can't even imagine a rebel group owning a third of the entire country. That's that's massive and drastic. Now, this war has actually captured some American interest a little bit. As I said, it's not really been in the media a whole lot. But the United States actually has several concerns with this specifically because uh, we've actually been collaborating with the Yemeni government, the, the established government, on counterterrorism ever since the bombing of the USS Cole, which took place back in 2000. And so since 2002, the United States has actually collaborated with the government on fighting terrorism and violent extremism, uh, with something like 200 strikes or so in Yemen, personally from the United States. And so while the Houthi rebels don't really pose a direct threat to the US, their attacks on infrastructure, territory, uh, as well as them fighting the Saudis, who have been a key ally of the United States uh, over the years, does kind of threaten some U.S. interests in the area. And unfortunately, this war does seem to be worsening. At the moment, there's probably something like 22 million people, again, out of 27 million, that are in some sort of need of assistance. Three million of those have been displaced, but plenty of others are in dire, dire straits as well. But the problem with this particular war is that it seems like, to an extent the international community has almost forgotten them. And, and this is kind of a, a sad thing when you think of how many civilians have kind of been caught in the crossfire here. Something like 15,000 of them have been killed or injured. And it's really turned into a massive humanitarian crisis. I mean, rivaling that of Syria, which is you know all over the news media. But Yemen has suffered almost as much unbearable suffering for some of the civilians there. There's human rights abuses, war crimes are being committed throughout the country. By, by all parties on, on all sides. And so this has become a very, like a massively raging conflict. And yet we hear very little about what's taking place there. And unfortunately in civil wars, civilians tend to bear the brunt of the violence. And this is true in Yemen as well. As I said, something like 22 million uh, Yemenis are in need of assistance. Uh, they actually, that's the estimate of how many actually currently depend on humanitarian assistance from outside in order just simply to survive. And as I kind of mentioned and hinted that a large part of the reason this has become so deadly and dragged on so long is this external support. So I wanted to kind of break down what's happening there. You have this uh, Saudi-led coalition that's taking place, and this is what they actually voted on in, in the Senate just recently, just last week. So in 2015, there was a military intervention that was launched by Saudi Arabia 
and they led a coalition of nine countries from the Middle East and some from North Africa as well. And essentially, they were doing this in support for the ousted Saudi president, Hadi. He was kicked out by the Houthis you know, over these grievances, and he actually fled to Saudi Arabia. So he wasn't even in the country for a large chunk of this. And the United States, because of our alliance with Saudi Arabia, has provided some intelligence and logistical support, including like aerial refueling and some search and rescue for uh, coalition pilots that have been downed in the area. We've also accelerated our weapons sales to some of these coalition states. And both the United States and Britain have sent military personnel to the command centers uh, in, that are responsible for some of these airstrikes in Yemen by Saudi Arabia. But this coalition has been widely criticized by many across the international community for making the humanitarian situation in Yemen worse. Uh, they have been accused of killing civilians, destroying things like medical centers, health centers, other infrastructure. And there's actually been a blockade, too, that has left something like 20 million of the, of the population in Yemen in dire need of th simple things like food and water and basic medical aid. And so a lot of ships and things are blocked, especially commercial ships, uh, which the country really relies on. And we've actually seen, too, within the country, you know, this humanitarian crisis has really blown up into a famine, which has threatened 12 or 13 million people. There's been an outbreak of disease and infection. Uh, cholera has really taken a root in the country. About well over a million people have caught cholera. And... Just in the last month or so, UNICEF came out with a report on Yemen, and they, I'm going to quote here. It says, Yemen is a living hell for children, saying that every 10 minutes a child dies due to preventable disease that is a direct result of the war. And we have seen reports that say something like 85,000 children under the age of five may have died of starvation. Now, earlier I said something like 6,000 had died in the conflict, and that is true, but when you start to incorporate all those who have died from disease and other things due to the conflict, but not from the conflict itself, things like starvation and, and disease, that number drastically rises. Now, uh, there are other things that the coalition has been accused of using, including things like cluster munitions, which are a type of explosive weapon that releases, essentially they're called cluster because it releases little, sometimes hundreds of smaller bombs, they call them bomblets, which is a cute name for something that's really not cute at all, which can often, uh, because they're so small, they don't often explode right away. And so they can lie there unexploded and they can still explode much later and cause drastic injury long after the initial attack, you know, as people are coming back out of their homes and things like that. And they're, so they're very imprecise and they do not do very well with targeting uh, specific people or specific fighters. And you'll notice I mentioned, too, that a lot of these people then come back out of their homes, and that's because a lot of these attacks, partly due to where the Houthi rebels are hiding out, which I think is, is um, despicable behavior to use civilians as human shields, but also partly because a lot of these attacks led by the Saudi coalition have been launched in very heavily populated civilian areas, including in neighborhoods, near homes, schools, hospitals, which are generally seen as huge violations of international law and could potentially, depending on, on how it's spun, amount to war crimes. And they do so with a lot of very imprecise weaponry, which is part of the big problem. If they were using something very precise that could target a specific group of fighters within a city, that's one thing. But things like artillery, mortar fire, certain types of rockets, 
are, they, they just don't distinguish between combatants and civilians. They're not very accurate, and they, they can't aim them nearly as well as other things that they could have used. Now, one of the reasons this has dragged on so long is that so many of these outside countries, including Saudi Arabia, but also the United States and the UK, have been fueling the crisis with arms. And as I mentioned early on, the United States does have some stake in what happens here. We've been working closely with the Yemeni government to fight terrorism across the area, but it's kind of reached a point where these weapons that we've been pouring into the Saudi coalition and other you know, smaller groups like that diverted into the hands of some of these armed forces, this has really probably extended the war and made it a lot deadlier and bloodier than it probably has ever needed to be. And a lot of European countries have actually suspended their arms sales to this region, particularly to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. But there are several, including, as I said, the United States and the UK, which have continued to supply members of this coalition with a lot of uh, advanced military equipment. Now, one of the other things that has really extended this war is not, not U.S. related at all, but there is a regional power struggle that's been going on for a long time between the Sunni-ruled Saudi Arabia and the Shia-ruled Iran. Now, if you've listened to my podcast on the war in Syria, I've touched on some of the political backing that takes place between a lot of these countries. And in particular, I spoke about the rivalry that's been going on for decades between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And we see that rivalry also play out in Yemen. There's a, a regional power structure. It's thought that Iran has been bolstering the Houthis you know, financially and militarily. Iran formally denies this, but there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that they have been doing something kind of behind the scenes as well. And so we have this kind of regional battle taking place between Sunni and Shia, as well as the theocratic Iran versus the monarchical uh, or the monarchy in, in Saudi Arabia in terms of what political Islam is really supposed to look like and who is going to really have the, the power of political Islam in the region and what that means for the rest of the world going forward and the rest of the region. And unfortunately, to this point, this civil war has essentially caused Yemen to become what's called a chaos state. A chaos state is essentially a state that is not governed by any sort of official recognized governing body. Now, a governed state could be a lot of different things. It could be a democracy, an autocracy, a monarchy. You know, it could be something like, like you see in North Korea where you have a dictator running things. But a chaos state really has no such governing body. As I said, the Houthis kind of control the capital city, but they only control a segment of the, the country. You have other portions that are still loyal to the original government, even though that government has been removed. Uh, Hadi had fled the country. Uh, the Yemeni governing body, like the official one, doesn't even really exist in Yemen anymore. And so this is a, a country, an entire massive territory on this tip of the Arabian Peninsula that is essentially under anarchy and under chaos without any sort of governing body to, to keep things stable and safe for the people, but also for the entire region as well. And one of the big problems here too that I think a lot of people are running into is that it's hard to take sides. You know, the United States has a stake in the original government because of our relationship with the, the counterterrorism task forces and things. But the problem is that that previous president also was quite corrupt. I mean, there were reasons that these protests cropped up in the first place and the Houthis got involved in it. And it's because uh, Saleh, 
the, this previous president, he's actually now now been killed. He stole massive amounts of money. There's some estimates that believe that they claim that he stole something like sixty billion dollars in the thirty years that he was in in power. And there were a lot of uh, financial and other forms of corruption that took place across the country uh, long before the war even began. As I said, these protests didn't just spontaneously come up out of nowhere. There had been unemployment and corruption and poverty that had existed long before this. And Yemen was considered probably the poorest country in the entire region. And so the the government that we had been working with on counterterrorism isn't exactly a, a shining beacon of of, of morality either. There was a lot of problems in the previous government, but the Houthis aren't exactly great either. They're essentially a terrorist group, a rebel group that has been very violent and committing you know, gross acts of humanitarian violence and things like that as well. And it's not like the other rebel groups are any better either. As I mentioned, Al-Qaeda is, is there as well, and the Houthis have been fighting against Al-Qaeda. So you know, who do you take sides with there? The violent Houthis or the terrorist Al-Qaeda and the Islamic States involved? So this raises some questions. What is the reason the United States has continued this relationship with Saudi Arabia? What does the the relationship look like between the countries? And a lot of this goes back decades, right? I mean, there's been some challenges to it. Back in 1973, there was an oil embargo. Uh, The 9-11 attacks, actually, a lot of the, the hijackers were Saudi citizens. But Saudi Arabia has long been a very critical partner strategically for the United States and the region built a lot on business ties dominated by our interest in the oil that's been there. Now, this oil relationship actually goes back all the way to 1933, most likely. Uh, U.S. businesses have been involved in their industry there with the company that becomes Chevron. At the time, it was called the Standard Oil Company of California. But uh, they actually signed a deal to explore kind of eastern Saudi Arabia for oil, and it actually makes its first discovery there in 1938. And so we have been involved there. Our, 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 U.S. businesses have been involved there uh, ever since. And so this is kind of a 70 to 80 year now alliance, tenuous alliance of sorts ever since. Now, this alliance is a little bit more than oil. We've actually seen alliance along a security front as well. They've been an important partner for the United States throughout the Cold War. We had forces that were stationed there in Saudi Arabia during the Gulf War as well, uh, when the U.S.-led coalition expelled a lot of the Iraqi forces from Kuwait. A lot, there was something like half a million U.S. troops close to that, which were based in Saudi Arabia as well. Now, this actually drew a lot of controversy within Saudi Arabia, who didn't like that we were kind of, or that their government was kind of cozying up to the West a little bit. But we've had this relationship through multiple wars, the Soviet occupation of, in, in Afghanistan as well. And it's weathered some problems and, and controversies as well. The 9-11 attacks are probably the biggest one. As I said, a good chunk of the hijackers, I want to say something like 13 of them were Saudi citizens. And there was a lot of kind of anti-Saudi sentiment after this, I would say understandably so. But this relationship kind of has lasted through that as well. But of note, this relationship has taken probably its biggest hit just recently with the disappearance and then ultimate, uh, it was discovered to be a murder of the Saudi dissident Jamal Khashoggi. And so this relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia has really opened up a a pretty large divide recently. Um, In particular, there's actually been a a divide, even the United States government, about how to approach this, where the congressional perception of Saudi Arabia has differed from the White House's claims. And so these kind of competing tensions 
means that we're going to have a lot of difficulty working with with Riyadh and Saudi Arabia going forward because the White House and Congress appear to be on different pages on this. And so this leads right into the resolution that took place. And so this, again, it was, it was a majority that was bipartisan, but this resolution came out and basically said that the Saudi military campaign that has been blamed for so many of these deaths, tens of thousands of deaths, and actually increasing the mass starvation that's taking place there is, is wrong and the U.S. support should be taken away from it. And so this is probably the biggest rebuke that we've seen in quite a while of this U.S. policy of supporting the coalition, uh, which has been going on for about three years now. And then, as I mentioned, on top of that, there was the second resolution that basically accused the Saudi government and Mohammed bin Salman personally of being directly involved in the murder of this columnist Khashoggi. Now, the passage of this resolution is probably symbolic. Uh, legally speaking, it doesn't require President Trump to do anything about it. Uh, and I should mention, too, that it's unlikely that the House is even going to vote on this, much less pass it. But even if there was passage, Trump has already said he's going to probably veto the resolution. And there's probably not enough support in Congress to overturn that. Still, the symbolic nature of it uh, is, is interesting. It's very unique. This is the, it goes back to the 1973 War Powers Act. Now, the War Powers Act, or the War Powers Resolution of 1973, was a federal law that was put into place. It was part of a, a series of laws that were put into place by Congress called oversight laws. And these oversight laws were taking place at a time where Congress and a lot of the public thought that the power of the presidency had gotten too large, uh, that the president was able to do more than was ever constitutionally intended. And so this law, along with several others at the time, were intended to check the president's power, especially in particular the War Powers was about the president's ability to send or to commit U.S. troops to an armed conflict without the consent of Congress. And it basically says that Congress needs to give authorization for the use of military force, something called AUMF, through either a declaration or some sort of other authorization after 60 days. So the president can send out troops without uh, de declaring war, but he has to notify Congress very quickly. I think it's within 48 hours. And it forbids troops from remaining in that location for more than 60 days without this congressional authority. Now, frequently, this War Powers Resolution doesn't amount to a whole lot. As I said, it's never been officially used to pull back troops before. But this, for the first time, we have seen the United States do this. And they, they use their power from the 1973 War Powers Act. And even though it's probably symbolic, it is symbolic of something. In this case, probably it's evidence that there's kind of a, a grassroots movement or grassroots pressure built, that's been building in order to force the United States or pressure the United States government in multiple areas, but in particular in Yemen and then over kind of this relationship with Saudi Arabia to really reconsider why we're there and why we're spending so much money on some of these things. You know, there's hundreds of billions of dollars that we have been been spending in refueling planes, for instance, and they're they're going over there, and uh, the Saudi coalition has been accused of some pretty terrible things with these planes, and so there is a growing pressure among Congress, but also among the American populace, to to end this relationship or at least severely cut it back. Now, whether this will actually occur is probably up in the air. As I said, the White House kind of disagrees with some of this. And as I said, the House probably wouldn't go along with it either. But this division is probably as wide as it's ever been. And so it may be signaling the start of something larger that could take place uh, down the road. 
and change how the United States approaches some of our allies in this region. Because the United States' involvement in this, while we do have strategic interests, has probably contributed to making the war even worse. And it's quite likely that our relationship with Saudi Arabia, already being strained by this uh, murder of the journalist, may see some pretty drastic changes going forward. Probably not immediately, but this vote last week is probably a sign that something is coming, that there's kind of a growing movement. Again, both Republicans and Democrats, so this is not a partisan or party-based resolution, but it may signal that something is coming down the pipeline in the near future. But with that, I think we're about out of time, so I'm going to go ahead and close things out. As always, you can find me on Twitter at JustinR underscore Kinney. Please check me out there. Follow me. I'd be happy to continue this conversation or any others about politics. You can also hit me up and ask me to cover any specific topics in the near future. I'm also on Facebook. You can find me at J. Robert Kinney. Follow me there as well. It's the name I write fiction novels under. I did have a new book that came out. I know I've said this pretty much every episode ever since, but I'm excited about it. So here goes. It's called Splintered State. You can find it on Amazon, both paperback and Kindle. Find it there. Check it out. And I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, You can also contact me if you're at all interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast, or advertising on the podcast. Please contact me. I'd be happy to talk with you more about that possibility. You can also check out my Patreon account online if you're interested in that capacity as well. But with that, I think we're just about out of time. So this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in 3, 2, 1.